Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When we left the Gemini program, there was a lot going on. Uh, you'll remember it was late October 1965. On the one hand, Gemini had hit a major speed bump with the Gemini 6 mission, uh, when the Gemini 6 mission had been aborted barely one hour into the mission, when the Agena target vehicle had disintegrated during ascent and the Gemini 6 capsule had not even gotten off the launch pad. On the other hand, there was a great deal of excitement because President Lyndon B. Johnson had just announced that the Gemini uh, program was very much intending to make some pretty exciting lemonade out of that big pile of lemons by making the next Gemini mission into a rendezvous mission by launching not one, but two Gemini capsules so that they would be on orbit at the same time. This combined Gemini 7, Gemini 6A mission, often known as Gemini 76, would be the first for NASA and in fact for the world. It would mark the first time that NASA had ever had two spacecraft with crew on board on orbit at the same time. Now, that was a feat that even the Soviets had actually accomplished only a couple of years earlier, but unlike the flight of Vostok 3 and Vostok 4, which operated independently during their time on orbit, Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford in the Gemini 6 capsule would actively maneuver to rendezvous with Frank Borman and Jim Lovell aboard Gemini 7. Not only that, but once the rendezvous was complete, the two spacecraft would complete several orbits of the planet while flying in close formation. And this was a feat that had never been accomplished. Now, Shara and Stafford had been training to complete such a rendezvous for several months. They and the ground controllers that would support them, including uh, rendezvous guru Dr. Buzz Aldrin, were ready for this history-making attempt, but they had not been expecting, however, to have an on-orbit audience for the performance. Well, now they would. And while Borman and Lovell would really have no significant role in the rendezvous, they would quite literally be spectators throughout the process. The fact that at the end of the exercise, two groups of humans who were not on planet Earth would literally be able to wave to one another from their respective spacecraft made this exercise just so much more compelling than the planned rendezvous with the robot spacecraft had been. Like Ed White's spacewalk a few months earlier, it was to become another one of those iconic moments in humanity's journey to the stars, and one of those moments when humans felt like it was possible that we did have a future out there. But we, like NASA, and we'll get to that in a little bit. First, uh, let's talk about what was going on to actually make that happen. First of all, of course, there was the problem of physically launching two spacecraft from the same pad in rapid succession. The actual countdown to launch was actually not the problem. The problem was going through all of the tests and checks to make sure that the booster and the spacecraft were ready for launch. Now, as we have talked about eh, extensively on this podcast before, the only way to make sure that everything is ready uh, is to put it all together and then literally and physically test everything that can be tested, you know, without actually lighting the candle. And then do it again. 
And of course, if there are any anomalies, fixes have to be made. And then everything that the fix affected would have to be tested, and then tested again. And all of this took time. In effect, starting from an unprepared booster segment, of which there were two, and a fresh spacecraft, it was estimated that it should probably take about mm, four to five weeks if there were no significant uh, anomalies or failures. For this mission, the turnaround had to be accomplished in just seven days from the launch of Gemini 7 to the launch of Gemini 6. The only reason that it could even be contemplated was because of all of the stacking, assembly, and pre-flight checks had actually already been done on the Gemini 6 booster and capsule that was sitting there on the pad. That meant if as much of the configuration, you know, the current configuration, could be preserved as possible, a lot of tests would not have to be done again. For those, uh, those that would have to be redone, it could reasonably be hoped that any significant failures or anomalies had already been found and would not be encountered again. All that had to be done was for Gemini 6, uh, the Gemini 6 stack to be carefully, oh, so very carefully, separated and transported to bonded storage. Then the Gemini 7 components would be stacked and integrated in a normal launch processing flow. The fun would really start after Gemini 7 launched. See, the moment the ground around the pad had cooled sufficiently, a swarm of ground processing personnel would comb the pad for any foreign objects and debris, also known in the business as FOD. This included items that were as small as a few centimeters. I mean, anything that could be picked up during the transport and processing of the Gemini 6 stack and end up where it shouldn't belong, or anything that could be picked up by the launch blast and become a deadly or mission-ending missile. Once the FOD sweep was complete, the track team would immediately begin moving the pieces of Gemini 6 carefully, oh, so very, very carefully, back to the pad to be reassembled. They would then complete all of the requisite tests and be ready to start the launch countdown in seven days. While everyone at the Cape knew that this was going to be a challenge, they at least had the benefit of having worked through the idea some months before, when it had first been suggested as a contingency and NASA management had agreed to allowing the CAPE to do a kind of a full study of the problem. For the flight control team in Houston and around the world at remote monitoring stations, the problem of how to support, manage, and control two Gemini spacecraft in orbit at the same time was very much a brand new problem that had to be solved. Within 24 hours of having been posed the question, the flight operations director had agreed that they didn't see any reason it couldn't be done, uh, which was quite different than having figured out how they were actually going to do it. To understand why it was such a, such a challenge, you do actually have to remember that this was 1965. Today we're so used to a multi-channel, multi-threaded, multitasking, multiplexed world that we forget that there was a time when communication was only single channel. You could literally only talk to one other station at once, or at least only talk on one frequency, and that communication wasn't even full duplex, meaning you could not both talk and listen at the same time on a single channel. In 1965, communicating wirelessly was still something where bandwidth was very limited. When the time available to communicate was limited, it required careful planning and disciplined communication to make sure that the time was used effectively to transmit all of the messages that had to be sent. And remember that at the best of times, a Gemini spacecraft could only talk to a single remote station 
for around 10 minutes. And that was only when it flew directly over the station, which it only did during one orbit out of every 16. And remember that in 1965, computers did not um, boot up as they do today by loading an operating system uh, and then presenting the user with a, a user interface, allowing the user to give instructions to the computer about what to program to run or what task to perform next. Now, in 1965, the runtime instructions for the computer were literally loaded at boot up. There would be some limited number of commands that could be issued based on the program that was loaded. But those options were very limited, and they certainly would not allow the operator to specify which spacecraft the computer would be talking to. Basically, in order to switch between spacecraft, the computer would have to be shut down and then restarted and rebooted so that it could load the new spacecraft's program. This was because every spacecraft had its own completely separate records in terms of all of its physical characteristics, including its weight and balance, fuel, oxygen, and water on board, but also including uh, the electrical systems. I mean, remember, Gemini 6 was the last mission to fly using batteries, and Gemini 7 was using fuel cells. And also, of course, each spacecraft had its own state vector information in terms of where it was and how it was moving. And since this mission, at least when there were two spacecraft uh, um, on orbit at the same time, the whole mission was about precisely managing and modifying the trajectories of the two spacecraft to bring them together to the same point in space, that really mattered. So, of course, it was very important not to get the spacecraft confused. Now, today, we'd manage this situation by having a database uh, that had separate entries for each spacecraft, and we'd be able to switch between them on the fly. In 1965, switching spacecraft required a complete shutdown and reboot. Now, at first, when the spacecraft were far apart, this wouldn't be much of a strain. But as the time for rendezvous approached, and as the Gemini 6 capsule approached Gemini 7, the time between their respective passes over any uh, given remote site would fall to just minutes and eventually to really just seconds. And remember that missing or messing up a reboot would mean foregoing critical communications with one of the spacecraft, probably Gemini 6, since it was the second one over each one of the sites, uh, which meant that the spacecraft data could not be read and the space pass spacecraft programming wouldn't be updated. And since those updates were the things that controlled the rendezvous operation, where timing was critical, the uploaded program was only applicable to the current trajectory situation. So missing an upload could undo hours of painstaking rendezvous approach and planning. Couldn't wait in orbit to do it again. Or worse, it might make rendezvous within the time available actually impossible. And recall that each remote site really had only a very limited staff, too, often just a Capcom and one other flight controller, who would have to be simultaneously managing communications with the spacecraft, including dealing with any new issues or anomalies that had cropped up while the spacecraft was out of contact, while also ensuring that the correct program had been loaded, the computer had booted properly, and had and completed any upload and download that was required for that pass. Only then to complete the switch to the second spacecraft in order to accomplish all of those things again. All the while keeping MCC in Houston aware of what was going on as it was happening. In short, the mission was going to be a significant challenge for the remote site Capcom. And the stakes were going to be high 
uh, as high as they'd ever been. And when you, uh, you are confronted with new tasks that you've never done before, that absolutely have to go right during flight, that means just one thing if you work at NASA. It means you're going to spend a lot of time practicing. Or, as NASA would say, you're going to spend a lot of time in sim. First, simply going through the basic procedures in simulation at your own console, just so you know where all the buttons are. And then in wider and wider simulations, finally including the whole global network and including simulated failures and anomalies, the scope of which are only limited by the imagination of the simulation supervisor's team. And for what it's worth, lack of imagination, particularly of the moderately sadistic kind, has never been a criticism I have heard leveled at anyone on a sim soup team. The run-up to Gemini 7 provided a classic example of this effect. The remote teams began deploying around the world in late November for a launch plan for the first week of December. Once on site, the final round of integrated simulations started. For these simulations, the entire flight control team would have been assembled at their consoles exactly as they expected to be during flight. No doubt the crew would also have been involved sitting in some form of simulator as well. Uh, a short sim would have required only one shift of the flight control team, but it's possible that they probably ran simulations that crossed the shift boundaries, so the flight controllers could practice shift handovers as well. Now, the simulation would have been designed to tab test absolutely as much of the real flight systems as possible. The raw data would have been generated by the simulator in some way, but would have passed into MCC and into and through the remote sites, using as much of the actual flight network and systems as possible. Also as much as possible, everything would have been done to create an atmosphere that was identical to flight. The kind of role-playing aspect of the simulation is actually really important. Flight controllers have to feel as if it's for real. Otherwise, they won't react the way they could be expected to during the flight. This is important because simulation is not just about confronting and solving technical problems or glitches. It's also about learning how to confront the unexpected as a team. In fact, I think one that, uh, of the most important parts of the NASA simulation culture is that it conditions everyone on the flight control team to see con contingency as, like, normal. Uh, and that's where the sim soups come in. It's the sim soup's job to ensure that nothing ever goes exactly to plan in a simulation. Now, some of the failures that will be simulated will be designed to replicate either the highest probability problems or the most critical ones. These are the situations where it's important that the flight control team's response be calibrated and, you know, almost instinctual. Failures during launch and ascent would fall into this category. And during the early phase of flight, there really is no time for discussion. Flight controllers need to know where to look to get the information they need, and they need to make decisions and act on that information, sometimes in just a few seconds. And this is why for any flight, the launch and ascent phases of flight will probably be simulated far more often than any other part of the mission. Once the most likely and most critical failures have been worked through, though, it's pretty much up to the SimSoup's team's imaginations. And that's important because the critical factor here is to challenge the team to respond to the unexpected. The point is not to practice the response to any specific situation, as much as it is to make the team go through the process of discovering something that is unexpected and working together to characterize it, 
understand its impact, and work through the possible solutions or workarounds. The faster the team could work through the first states of discovery and characterization and onto the process of isolating or working around the problem, the better. This skill really had very little to do with any particular technical knowledge and much more to do with adapting to an environment in which dealing with the unexpected was just part of the job. And as I said, the run-up to Gemini 7, uh, Gemini 76, provides an excellent example of this. This was a time when the flight control team was expanding rapidly, not only to keep up with the increasing cadence of flights and preparations for the start of Apollo testing, but also to assimilate a number of U.S. Air Force personnel who were being seconded to NASA to learn the ropes ahead of what the Air Force hoped was going to be its own manned spaceflight program. Um, now, because these Air Force personnel came with some experience, they were often placed in you know, slightly more senior positions than would have been normal for new hires. Uh, one of these was a gentleman named Bill Buckholtz, a former fighter pilot who had been selected to join the Hawaii team as a deputy Capcom, working with the very experienced Ed Fendel. Buchholz had shown a lot of promise, and the training supervisor for the Hawaii site wanted to put him and the rest of the Hawaii team and, in fact, the whole flight control team, to the test of seeing whether or not the new guy could or would be allowed to step up. So, the local sim soup arranged with Ed Fendel and the local flight surgeon for Fendel to fake a heart attack while on console. The moment Fendel chose was during the very last dress rehearsal sim for the rendezvous portion of the mission, with the Gemini 6 spacecraft just coming over the horizon in Hawaii as it was in the final stages of closing in on the Gemini 7 capsule. Ed Fendel first announced to the surgeon and the room that he didn't feel well. A few minutes later, he stood up, grasped his chest, and collapsed on the floor, and the flight surgeon immediately began ministering to him. I'll let Gene Kranz take over the story from there. Quote, struggling into the Capcom's chair amid the tangle of headset cords, Buchholz stepped on Fendel's chest, punched in his headset, and croaked on the voice loop, Chris, Fendel just had a heart attack. Kraft momentarily startled, but wise to the tricks of simulation, called the simulation supervisor and asked, SimSoup, is this some of your doing? Since he'd actually not originated the plan, SimSoup responded, Not mine, flight. Kraft then punched up the loop and said, Hawaii, keep me apprised. Have the surgeon give Fendel status to the MCC surgeon. And although deeply concerned about his Capcom, Kraft knew that the clock was ticking to launch, and that with the whole tracking network up and operating, not even a heart attack could be allowed to interfere with the mission preparation. Buchholz passed the test. With Fendel on the floor at his feet, he took control of the site's part of the simulation, provided support to Gemini 7, then reconfigured to support Gemini 6. For the next hour and a half, despite everyone in the loop worrying about Fendel, the simulation went forward flawlessly. As the third Hawaii pass approached, Fendel rolled over, got to his feet, and placed his headset back on. Unquote. From Gene Krantz, failure is not an option. Mission control from Mercury to Apollo 13 and beyond. Not only did Buchholz pass the test, but really the whole team up to it, including Chris Kraft, did as well. They proved that the new guys on the team could and would be trusted if they had to step up, which I think was actually the point of the exercise. Remind everyone on the team that even on a team full of exceptional individuals, it was what the team did that mattered. I think it's also a perfect example of how closely the SimSoup's team guarded their secrets and, and why this was a critical element of the process. 
since no one could ever be sure what was simulated and what was for real, everything was treated as if it wasn't a drill. And through that process, everyone learned to deal with and accept that the unusual was just part of the job. This ability to treat the unexpected as a daily occurrence is one of the lasting impressions that working in mission control made on me. If you wanted to learn what it was like to, in the words of Rudyard Kipling, keep your head when all about you were losing theirs and blaming it on you, you needed to spend a little time in NASA with flight controllers during a integrated simulation. At any rate, the Gemini flight control team managed to survive the tender ministrations of the training team. The training team managed to survive Chris Kraft's reaction when he found out it had all been part of the sim, although Gene Krantz reports that it was touch and go for a while. In fact, the entire team did more than survive. As Gene Krantz points out, in fact, the team thrived. Quote, There are times when an organization orchestrates events so perfectly that the members perform in perfect harmony. It's part of team chemistry where communication becomes virtually intuitive with teams marching to a cadence, the tempo increasing hourly, and the members never missing a beat, unquote. And so, by the 4th of December, more than a week ahead of the original planned date, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman headed to the pad at KSC to begin their part in the Gemini 76 joint mission. Now, something that is often lost in the discussion of that joint mission is what the crew of Gemini 7 actually achieved. Although, in point of fact, it's more appropriate to say what they endured. I mean, most of the attention on this period in NASA's history is focused on the joint part of the joint mission. Um, after all, hardly anyone talks about Gemini 7. It's always Gemini 76. But that joint part of the mission lasted barely more than a day. Gemini 7, on the other hand, lasted 14 days. Let that sink in. Jim Lovell and Frank Borman spent 14 days in a Gemini spacecraft, meaning that they spent 14 days in a space about the size of the front seat of a modern compact car. Of course, except there was no way to open the window. They spent 14 days effectively in the same seat. Now, even though they were weightless, there was no room for them to float around, as we see modern astronauts doing. No, they spent 14 days in the same seat, a seat in which they did everything, including sleeping, drinking, drinking, eating, and, well, everything else. The only food available was dehydratable meals, and it was strictly limited to pretty much the minimum necessary. There was no real concession either to variety or, frankly, very much concession made to palatability. They also spent the whole time effectively in the same set of clothes. Now, for Gemini 7 at least, the crew did have newer, lighter, and less bulky suits that were designed only for use inside the spacecraft, since there was no EVA planned. The most important feature of the new suits was that they featured a soft hood rather than a hard helmet. Uh, the crew were supposed to be able to don the suit in about 15 to 20 minutes, and so, despite the continuing rule from NASA management that the suits had to be worn for the duration of the flight, both the flight crew and the flight controllers hoped that they'd eventually be able to spend the bulk of the flight in their shirt sleeves to make the experience at least a little less of a trial. In the end, despite strenuous and nearly continuous requests from flight director Chris Kraft, from the crew office, and from the Gemini management team, 
NASA management continued to insist that at least one crew member be suited up at all times. This essentially stemmed from NASA management concern that there were certain emergency procedures, such as the response to a fire on orbit, that required the capsule to be vented to space, and the only way for an astronaut to survive that situation was if he was in a suit. Now, despite the inflexibility on the point about having to be suited up, NASA had applied some lessons from the previous long-duration flights of Gemini 4 and Gemini 5. For one thing, the uh, flight plan employed an entirely different approach. Gemini 4 and Gemini 5 had basically used the same approach applied to all the Mercury and earlier Gemini flights of more or less scheduling the entire crew day with a series of tasks, events, or experiments. Now, experience had shown that it was simply not possible in a long-duration flight to either predict the time that it would take to perform many of these tasks on orbit or to understand when the crew would be in a position to perform them. Basically, the on-orbit environment in the very cramped Gemini capsule was just so different than anything experienced and simulated in 1G that only the crew on orbit at the time would have a good feel for how long any given task would take and how much effort it was going to require. And certainly, only the crew could decide what tasks could be done in parallel by both crew members or the ones that would have to just be done sequentially. So, flight planners had basically thrown the whole problem of scheduling and sequencing over to the crew. So, other than some very specific tasks that had to be performed immediately after orbital insertion or during the rendezvous and station keeping period with Gemini 6A or just prior to re-entry, the flight plan essentially consisted of a list of activities that needed to be performed. It was up to the crew to figure out how to use their 330 hours of on-orbit time to accomplish them. With this new flight plan in hand, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman boarded their capsule. Exactly on time at 2.30 p.m. local time, the Gemini Titan launch vehicle engines lit and Gemini 7 lifted off the pad. A little over six minutes later, the capsule separated from the booster after injecting Gemini 7 into its 160-kilometer orbit. Meanwhile, on the ground, ground crews waited just long enough for the pad to cool before immediately beginning the task of getting the pad ready for the next phase of the flight of the twins. Now, we'll talk more about the culmination of those efforts next time on Terranauts, because that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.